All right, thanks, band. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Church again. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, welcome again to all of you. If it's your first day here, a special welcome. If it's your church home, welcome back. Uh, Happy Mother's Day to your moms as well, Uh, moms and moms-to-be. And I hope you had a great weekend um, just celebrating uh, whatever you guys uh, did. And Elisa and I actually made the grave mistake of going to Girton's yesterday on Saturday. It's kind of like going to Ikea, I think, on a Saturday, but worse. It felt like worse. We're like, what are we doing? When we, got, we knew it, why were we driving up when there's no place in the universe to park and look like a carnival was happening and I thought, but we did it anyway. Crazy, but, but fun. Uh, so anyway, we are in Highland. I did a great job summarizing the, the uh, thing really well. Today we are in Zechariah 7 and 8 today in, in a series, greater series in the book of Zechariah, which is an Old Testament return prophet uh, we call Uh, It, or him, Uh, he was a historical figure who prophesied to the returning Jews from Babylonian captivity around 520 B.C. And so the the main motif or theme is people returning to God. And that's happening here physically, kind of and spiritually as well. But the the big arrow into the future, the big prophetic kind of angle or bent towards this is God's desire to return people spiritually to himself. And so we see this in the New Testament. God's desire is not to bring us geographically somewhere. His desire is to bring us spiritually to where he is. And so it's more of this uh, central thing where we centralize our lives on Christ and him crucified. The way back, Jesus says, I'm the way. Uh, So it's not a path uh, in the dirt. Uh, It's rather a path that he treaded for us when he uh, went to the cross and died for our sins. That's the path. Uh, That is the the way back um, is his blood. And so if you have that in mind, you have actually quite a bit in mind. If you're new to the Bible or this genre, it's a very difficult portion of the Bible to read because it's so heavily symbolic. But if you understand that this is really direct or abstract or indirect uh, glimpses of Christ, symbols and prophetic oracles and statements about Christ ahead of time, 520 years ahead of time, really, uh, if you're looking for him in the book, you'll actually get uh, quite a bit. So uh, it is uh, these two chapters together, and again, Highland touched on this, but we're preaching them together because they juxtapose so well. Uh, it is kind of a bad news, good news type setup. Chapter 7, the bad news. Chapter 8, the good news. Chapter 7, uh, the judgment news. Chapter 8, the news of hope uh, about God is going to end exile. He's going to bring people back to himself. And so you're really kind of getting the whole story arc of the Bible today is about sin and redemption. Uh, it's about uh, not measuring up. It's about uh, rebelling. It's about spitting in the face of God. And not just doing bad things, but saying to God, I don't need you. That, that's actually what we see way back in the beginning of the Bible is more of that than we do kind of outright more obvious sins. Though those come as symptoms, kind of as byproducts of initially rebelling against God. Sin more broadly defined, and we'll actually get to more of this today, is rebelling against God's rule. Uh, it's saying, even if we might believe in him and can still very much do this, we can believe in him and still say, I just don't, you're good but not great. You're there, but I don't need you that much because I'm pretty good. I think I can do it. Kind of I can do it mentality is really the initial temptation of Adam and Eve away from God, which uh, literally allowed all hell to break loose uh, right up to today. So another way to look at this too is to see it as kind of like a father talking with his kids about their relationship, how the kids rebelled, how they disobeyed, how they brought harm to themselves, how they grieved their father and were disciplined for it, but then how the father in his love for them remains steadfast and focused and relentless in his love in spite of it all and how there are better days ahead. 
So the two chapters together kind of serve that whole story arc. And again, if you're new to the Bible, you'll kind of get the whole Bible in a nutshell um, today, which you kind of do every week, but, uh, but especially with this, the, the, the length and meat of this uh, within Zechariah. And in Zechariah's terms, you really get it uh, today. So, so with that said, uh, we're going to look at this theme. We'll get to this theme a little bit later. Um, there's some dualities here, uh, kind of from chapter 7 to 8, these movements from one thing to another uh, as well. And one of them is from fasting to feasting. And we'll talk about that here in just a little bit. But let's read chapter 7 to begin. We'll talk about the bad news first, and then chapter 8, we'll get to the good news. Chapter 7. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chislev. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sharazer and Regem Melech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, Should I weep and abstain in the fifth month, as I have done for so many years? Then the word of the Lord came, of the hosts came to me, saying, Say to all the people of the land and the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these seven years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you, eat for yourself? Do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with her cities around her and the south and the lowland were inhabited? And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus the Lord of hosts says, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. As I called and they would not hear, so they called and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with the whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. Thus the land they left was desolate, so that no one went to and fro, and the pleasant land was made desolate. All right, so basically the whole thing here starts with a question. Not just chapter 7, but as we'll see, we go into chapter 8, uh, continues this idea. The whole thing starts with a question. The question the men ask Zechariah. So there's this, these men who are entreating the favor of the Lord. It's going to ask God a question through priests and prophets, Zechariah being one of them. And the question is this. Does God want us to weep and to fast from food in the fifth month to commemorate the destruction of the temple? As I'm paraphrasing, that's why they're, why they're fasting is to commemorate, looking back 70 years, when the city was destroyed, the temple of God's presence, the center of worship for the Israelites was destroyed. Should we fast to remember that? And should we mourn and weep as we've kind of done ourselves for these 70 years? As they're coming back to the land, they're asking that. Are things kind of changing now or, or what's the deal? God's answer to that is not really a, a direct answer. Uh, it's a little bit more indirect. He kind of backs up a bit. But first, he questions their motives for fasting. Did you fast for me, he says? When you fast from food, is that a fast kind of unto me? Was it something I commanded? Was it something kind of you, you, were, you were doing out of my grace? Was it something that you were doing to kind of draw near to, uh, to God and express your dependence on me more than food? Then he widens out further again, like I was saying, to remind them why they were in captivity in the first place. So it kind of goes a little bit aside from the question. It doesn't really answer it directly, but just says, again, remember why you're here, why you got there. 
You're coming back not based on righteousness, not based on your inherent goodness, but based on my call back. Let's remember this. He's not doing this to rub salt in the wound. He's not a killjoy. He's doing this because we're forgetful. He, he wants people to be uh, in their right heart, in their right mind. He wants people to draw near to him uh, based on just right premises. And so he's doing this to remind people of sin, but to remind him of their, of their grace as well. And as he does that, we learn that sin is not just, as he lists it out here in Zechariah 7, sin, as we define it more holistically, is not just doing bad things, it is, but also doing good things with impure motives. So it includes things like, as he lists, hate, oppression, neglect of the poor and the widow, turning a deaf ear to God, even things like thanklessness, uh, to not have a thankful heart, to thank God for all things in our lives, big or small, uh, food and season change and not getting sick or getting healed from sickness or great day at school, great day at the job, uh, again, marriage, having kids, wh- whatever, big or small things in life, planting a tree. Not thanking God for those things is to kind of say they exist and they happen because of me or because of someone else besides you. And so I mean, a thank less heart is also sin. He talks about that when he says turning a deaf ear to God as well and stopping up our ears like with plugs or rubber, uh, rubber plugs. So it includes all that stuff, but also things he says here like fasting from food religiously in a way that puffs us up rather than truly seeks after God or a way that centralizes ritual over God himself, uh, who is the goal, should have been the goal of, of all of these things. We can apply that sentiment to everything in this passage as well, or just other things. Did you help the poor for me? Was it for me that you helped the poor, or was that just for you? Did you serve other people? Did you pray? Was that for me, or was that just for you? Was that an expression of religion, or is that something you did because I, I called you to? Was it living out of my grace? You can apply that to all these kind of good things here that God calls people to, and they say, you stopped your ears to not hear them, didn't want to do them, to my call. You could apply the same type of sentiment to it. It reminded me of a, this wisdom literature verse, this proverb basically in Ecclesiastes 7. King Solomon wrote this around 1000 BC, and uh, I'm paraphrasing here uh, for simplicity, but um, basically in a few verses he says this, be not overly wicked, nor overly righteous, but fear God. Be not overly wicked, but also don't be too good, <laughs> which is really weird, right? And he's not saying it's wrong to pursue good. God's the essence of good. We should abhor evil and cling to what is good, Romans 12 says. But he is saying there's a type of goodness that takes you away from God. It's possible to be too good in that regard, to be haughty, to be prideful in the things that you do, and then to miss out on God and his grace entirely. So, the wisdom here, we could put New Testament words to it and say the point is Jesus. The point is, is his grace. Uh, more than it is good things. So those are at the heart of God or can be at the heart of God too. But it is clearly so. And you see this in Jesus' ministry as well. When he, when he calls people away, not just from bad deeds, but from, from ill-motived good deeds. In fact, that the people he butts heads with the most are good religious people, not bad people. Those are the people that don't understand the gospel. They don't get grace. They're too tripped up by it. And so those of us who are, and we all have this in our hearts. We're all wicked. We all do bad things. But we also have this inherent sense of moral righteousness that, that we might cling to a little bit more than God or it might trip us up in seeing our need for him. So in both things, Jesus calls us away uh, from them. 
from away from bad things and also from ill-motived good to himself. Uh, I, a while ago I said this, uh, but he, he's kind of like the, uh, the math teacher in his ministry who says, solve for X, and oh, by the way, I am X. You know, so he's not saying, this is the way over here, or solve the solution over here. He's saying, you know, I am the solution. So he, he's the, what we call the third way. He's not in an oversimplified manner calling people from bad to good. There's a sense to which parts of his teaching does that. But more than that, he's calling people to himself. Again, that's where good people, people who think they're good, could get really tripped up with the gospel uh, because they might think they're too righteous for it, you know, that they're actually kind of okay. Life's pretty good. I did like 10 good things yesterday, <laughs> you know. I can name them all or something, you know. And that's great. Praise God. But is that from you? Did, did you do that for God out of his grace and love or was that just something you just did uh, based on your own strength and are you haughty over it now? But we are, uh, according to, and I'm going to use his language here, we have diamond hard hearts towards these things. Diamond hard. If you want to summarize the the problem of the Bible, it's there in a few words. Diamond hard hearts. Diamond is the hardest of minerals. It cuts through everything. It's not just stone hard or rock hard uh, hearts, as that song the band just did says. It's, It's diamond hard, impenetrable, not soft to the things of God. So that's the bad news. And that's actually what God, and that's, you know, there's kind of a good news thing here in that when you hear, that's bad news, that we have diamond hard hearts. But the good news is that God wants the heart more. You know, so when he's asked about fasting, when God, when, when God is asked, should we fast from food? God's answer is, uh, that's, that's not really the, the question. What I want is your heart. What I want is your heart. You have diamond hard hearts. He kind of just shushes the thing to the side a bit and says, you're missing the whole thing here. What I want is your heart. And that's good because it heightens the relational dimension to salvation. God wants us more than good works. And he wants good works, but he wants us more. Like as a parent, I think this all the time with my kids. I, you know, I, what grieves me are, are two things. Their disobedience, but especially their relational coldness towards me. I would, much more, I would much more want their heart than I would just their cold-hearted obedience to things I want done. You know, especially if they wouldn't, and my kids don't do this, uh, and I think in any even decently, basically loving home, this is a, kind of a stretch, but it will happen, uh, is that kids will seek to earn love. And, you know, for a parent that actually loves their kids, we, we hate that. We, we hate that. It's the last thing you want. You actually want, their, you want to hear from them. You want to know them. You want them to know you. You want to hang out. So their disobedience does grieve, does grieve me, does, does grieve Aletha, but what really grieves us is their relational coldness whenever we would get that. We want their heart, and that's what God wants for us. So that's the embedded good news, and we'll get to the kind of more explicit good news here, but when God says, that's not the question. You're, you have diamond hard hearts. What he's saying is, I want to know you. I want to know you. I want to soften your heart. I want to be like a father to you. I want to call you my child. Isn't that much better? So that the gospel then is not God's a million miles away saying over here, I want you to do these things, and that's the nature of your relationship, still separated. That's a very hellish idea, very hellish. It's very burdensome, very much about us. But rather the gospel is what God wants, and we're seeing this in a kind of a foggy way from from a you know, historical vantage point that's 520 years before Christ. But this is the hope. 
is God wants our hearts. He wants to know us. He, want, he wants us to know him. He wants to soften our hearts and save us. And he wants to be close again. So at the very end of the book, the picture we get is God walking among us. The picture is we can see his face again. We can talk to him. The picture is actually of God, the God of the universe, wiping a tear off of our cheek. That's the gospel. That's the goal. That's what God wants. More than cold-hearted uh, obedience. And so moving on from there then in Zechariah 8, we'll, we'll see this. Again, this is kind of the backdrop, a little bit of a glimpse of hope there, but the backdrop against which Zechariah 8 is, you know, shines all the brighter. And because of Jesus, Zechariah 8 is possible. So even as I read, think of that. Think of where is Christ, where's the hope of Christ whispered, as Highland said earlier, a glimpsed here as we move uh, towards these more even New Testament sounding images of what God's going to do in the future. When he truly returns people to himself, when he truly rebuilds the temple, which is the church, when he truly rebuilds the city of Zion, which is a picture of the church, that he might dwell and walk in the streets of that Zion, which is an image of him walking around us and in us by his spirit. And so all these things are are, um, fulfilled in him. We'll get to some of these, but as I read even, um, see see what you can find. So verse one, chapter eight. And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion, or Jerusalem, with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women shall sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, If it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country. I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, in faithfulness and in righteousness." Thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong, you who in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets who were present on the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. For before those days, there was no wage for man and any wage for beast. Neither was there any safety from the foe for him who went out or came in. For I set every man against his neighbor. But now... I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts, for there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit, and the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their dew. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you, and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. For thus says the Lord of hosts, as I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent, says the Lord, so again have I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, and the fast of the fifth, and the fast of the seventh, 
and the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love truth and peace. Thus, as the Lord of hosts, people shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. All right. So I I have to think that this was a pretty fun thing for Zechariah to prophesy. You know, contrary to some of the bad news things that prophets have to speak sometimes. And, and you see that in the Old Testament where prophets say, I don't want to say that. It's, it's just almost humorous. You know, we laugh because we don't have to do it sometimes. But, but then kind of what we do with the gospel. But, uh, but they say, I don't want to say that. They're not going to listen to me. And, you know, God comforts and consoles prophets sometimes. And he says, don't worry. You know, one, I'm with you. But two, these are my words. If they reject you, they're rejecting me. We're just messengers. So I think kind of a helpful sort of, this is a sidebar, but helpful thing for us as we communicate the Bible to people and gospel truth, we will be hated, disagreed with, people will be angry with us, uh, but also people will receive the message as well. But it, it's inconsequential how people respond. We, we can't control that. You know, God, like to the prophet, says just speak. Speak the word and, and uh, let the, the chips fall where they may, essentially, because God's, God's got that. Um, but anyway, but here, that, this is, that's not going on here. I think Zechariah is probably really liking to say this stuff. This is, this is the good news in chapter 8, contra chapter 7. He says, basically, God will save you from your diamond hard heart. Just to summarize this in a few sentences here. God will save you. The word save comes up more than once. He promises to save, save. And not just from a physical slavery, because they were. They were enslaved to the Babylonians, essentially. Things weren't great. They weren't in the land. They weren't where God was. And so God's saving physically, but he's also promising to save from this, the diamond hard heart that doesn't care about God. It doesn't, it, it's not naturally inclined to worship him. It doesn't really care about the things that pertain to the gospel. He's promising to change this in here. You know, he says the phrase, I love this, I, I will purpose to do it. So, as he purposed to bring judgment for sin, he will purpose and never relent to bring good. And then I am jealous in love for you. That, that, that is, if you weren't aware of this, that is one of the, in Zechariah and other parts of the Old Testament, we see that is a, a major characteristic of God for you and me. If we're in Christ, if we are the bride of Christ, then he is jealous in love for us. Not jealous of us, that would be sin. Jealous for us. That's good news. So what that means is he's active in love, that he's not passive in hate. He cares when he sees us in trouble, when he sees us being flirted with by sin. He comes to our aid. He interrupts that conversation. He deals with it. doesn't sit back on his couch with a TV remote, but he actually deals with it. He's jealous in love. He's active, jealous, I actually care about my bride kind of love and Sometimes that looks like having a wrath or an anger for other people that are threatening her. So he goes on, he says, there will be in, the, in this kind of gospel future, dancing in the streets, the ground will become uncursed. You will feast versus fast. 
you will speak the truth to one another and seek after peace. And many from other nations will come to share in these blessings. It's a very international vibe as well. This made me think of uh, a little bit about our National Night Out block party. Do you guys do those on your blocks, like in August? I think it's the first Tuesday of the, of the month uh, in August, I think. So uh, anyway, we've done it for years, uh, our block has, and it kind of reminded me of that, you know, where there's literally uh, children playing in the streets, multi-generational hangout uh, happening, tons of food, massive cakes, um, you know, over uh, that Linda seems to always uh, find for us, which you appreciate. They're massive. They're too big, actually, too big, but they're, uh, but they're great. And, uh, and, they're, and it's a party, and there's piñatas and laughter, and, and you can think about your backyard, barbecues as well, Christians, non-Christians, diversity, um, food, people with drinks just laughing together. And it's, not, it's kind of careless in a good way, careless. And the weather, weather's usually nice, and, and it's just, it's almost kind of utopic uh, in, in a sense. It's not, but, you know, we'll get to that. But it almost kind of is. It reminds us of, of what's coming. And so I think you see a little bit of God's character here. When, when God says this, remember, he's, he's not reading from a script someone else gave him. This is what God wants to see, right? This is God's future. This is what God's bringing into the world. And so we get a glimpse of what he likes. He cares about kids laughing. He cares about intergenerational community. He cares about parties. He cares about food and lots of it, even more than we do in perfectly holy ways. And so there's a way for us as Christians then to value those uh, equally as much or at least in a way that resembles God's desire, you know, for those things. We are called to be partiers and people who partake of food with thankfulness in our hearts, in community and amongst a lost world. We're called to diversity in the church, not to all be in identical kinds of people, but diversity and, and to care about kids. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a picture of God's heart here, not just a future, but we've got to think about that. God wants this. He wants this kind of future for us, and, um, and, it, and it comes through his son. But, th- but that, that's the catch, and there's always a prophetic catch. When we see these types of images in the prophets, uh, there's always the catch or the problem, and that is, None of this really, at least fully, happens in Zechariah's day or any day soon thereafter. It's too utopic and international in vibe and fruitful and glorious in in vibe as as well. And so like all the prophecies of the book and any prophetic book in the Old Testament, it looks beyond itself. You know, think about what Israel would have, have thought when the city wall and temple were rebuilt, but the kids weren't really able to play in the streets as freely as Zechariah imaged. Or what about when people had the propensity to, again, make their hearts diamond hard towards the things of God? And they heard Zechariah saying this. They're like, well, wait a minute. You know, I've got a huge problem here still. When's that going to be dealt with? Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament, which are the historical narrative counterparts to the prophetic books of books like Zechariah, their purpose is to raise this tension. Again, I've encouraged you guys already to do this, and I encourage you again, read those alongside this series, Ezra and Nehemiah. Part of their purpose is to raise this tension. The return to the land when Israel's coming back is good, but it's not great. It's not that glorious. It's full of sin. You know, so the prophets are prophesying about this return, and people are coming back, and there are good things that happen, and shouts of joy and trumpets playing, but then a huge chunk of the latter part of Ezra is to just kind of list out the sins of the people. Over and over and over again, you know, which drives the story forward, right? It doesn't allow us to kind of wallow in this, okay, 
what Zechariah saw is done. God's design for the future and God's kind of ultimate hope is done. It, the, the books don't allow for that because Zechariah, in Zechariah's day, these things weren't uh, totally fulfilled. So another day's long for. The prophets call this day that's, that, that Israel and the world watching was to look ahead to the day of the Lord. Or on this side of Christ, we know it as the day of Christ. Because it's only through Jesus and what he did for us on the cross that these saving, gracious things come to fruition. It's only through him. So if the question here is, where do we see him in, uh, in this kind of latter section of the uh, larger passage here, um, what I want to do is, for the rest of our time, look at these two, uh, what I'm going to call gospel movements or dualities. Movements from lesser to greater things, you know, so from bad to good, bad news to good news, chapter 7 to chapter 8, how God kind of changes things, paints a better picture, and where we see Christ in uh, those two things. And I actually had a lot more dualities, but I don't nearly have enough time for it. So maybe you saw other ones, and I encourage you to look for them. And when you see the greater thing then, the chapter 8 version of what the chapter 7 was kind of denouncing or couldn't see possible, see Christ in in chapter 8. I encourage you to do that. But the first of two we're going to look at today is from uh, this idea of fasting to feasting from Zechariah 8.19, which again says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, your fasts shall be seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. So essentially, all of your fasts will cease. They will become times of feasting instead of fasting from food. When we get to Jesus in the New Testament, when he talks about the kingdom of God, which of which he is king, so it's not just a phrase to imply what the prophets were foreseen, when God would set up rule in this world and save people and bring them into the kingdom's walls and make peace and destroy the enemies of his people and and rule perfectly, all of that and more. When he's talking in these terms, he actually talks with these kinds of words at times as well. Talks about um, how in the kingdom feasts will outweigh fasts which ends up really confusing some people. I mean, it might for you too, and it is confusing. It's just a hard teaching. But it confuses some in his ministry and greatly offends others at, at the same time. And others just kind of walk into it and just kind of assume, all right, Jesus can kind of set, set the rules here and we'll just eat or not eat as he teaches. In Matthew 9, to give a, a small glimpse of this, it, at one point in Jesus' ministry, John the Baptist's disciples came to him and, and they asked this question, why do we... And the Pharisees, who are these Jewish religious leaders, uh, pastor types, why do, why do they fast? Why do we fast from food, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus' answer to that question is, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Basically, he's saying, because I'm here. Why aren't they fasting? Because I'm here. Why would they fast? Is it right to fast at a wedding celebration? Have you ever heard of a reception that celebrates by fasting? When you show up and there's no food and people try to put on a happy face. Like it never happens because food and joy go together. He goes on to say here, you will fast and mourn when I die on the cross, but then he's raised from the dead three days later and it's been Easter ever since. And he's been with us, he says at the end of Matthew. I will always be with you to the end of the age. He's been with us ever since, so the wedding continues as he promised. And the premier symbol of the New Testament, what does he say? What's the premier symbol of the New Testament? The ultimate sacrament. 
It's communion. The thing that I want you to do, church, one of the ultimate things is eat food in remembrance of me. Fasting is not the sign of the new covenant. It's eating. Drink and eat in remembrance of the fact that I laid my life down for you. When you eat the bread, think of my body. When you drink the wine, think of my blood. So the premier symbol of the new covenant is eating in communion, uh, not abstaining. A movement then from the old to the new. Matthew eleven nineteen also kind of a different angle on this. Jesus says about the Pharisees, these are Jesus' words, the Son of Man came, he's saying, talking about himself, so I came eating and drinking and they say, look at him, a non-faster, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. What Jesus does a lot of times, in, not just with fasting, this is, you know, Jesus' MO in a lot of ways, he, he challenges our perception of what true Christian spirituality should look like. Even as Christians, these can be difficult things to swallow, but he challenges our, our misperception. We might lean towards being more ascetic than God wants. There's a time for that, but we might lean towards more of it in our lives than what God actually desires, or towards simple works rather than resting in grace, or towards even things like, in extreme forms, self-harm. And that might appear spiritual, but it's not what Jesus commanded. The gospel says, in so many words, Jesus fasted for us. We, we have that song here we sing sometimes, his holy fast and his hungered sore, which links fasting with his death on the cross for our sins. He fasted for us, so that now the essence of our relationship with him is imaged with food, feasting on his grace, not uh, abstaining ourselves. He worked for us that we don't have to work for him. He suffered harm for us that we don't have to harm ourselves. Now, to be clear, it's, it's fine for individual Christians to fast at times. Some of you guys do, that's great. Some of you don't, and that's great. You are free in the gospel to never fast another day in your life. And you're free in the gospel to do that sometimes. There are great reasons to fast. And there are really, there are really bad reasons to fast as well, terrible ones. Uh, but there can be really good ones, New Testament ones to fast. Um, I won't go into that today. It's not really a point. Uh, but there can be good ones. But, but we should respect each other across those different, kind of that, the barrier of that difference. Uh, the, the New Testament talks about that. Some of you fast, some of you don't. Love each other. Love each other. Because the kingdom is not about food and drink, but righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. Romans 14, 20. The essence of Christianity is not about that. So freedom to kind of be different there. What is it about? Peace with God through Jesus Christ. Righteousness before God through Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. So don't make it about food, is his argument. So it's fine for individual Christians to fast at times, but it's wrong to live as though the tomb is not empty. That's very wrong. I don't think the first thing the women and disciples were thinking when they gazed into that empty tomb that first Easter morning was, what food can I give up this week? And every day when we stare into the empty tomb ourselves, because every day is Easter, it shouldn't be our first question either. Because our fasts have been turned into feasts. All right, next. Next duality. From curse to a blessing. Zechariah 8, 12 to 13, it says, The vine shall give its fruit, the ground shall give its produce, and as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, Judah, 
so will I save you, and you shall become a blessing. When we see the, the land become uncursed like this in the Bible, this is symbolic language, but here it's becoming uncursed, that it might produce fruit again perfectly, that's an image of salvation for people. Because it was our rebellion that cursed the land in the first place. And some of you guys maybe have never read the Bible before, you don't know this, you don't know how the book starts, but if you do, when you see that theme happen where the ground's becoming uncursed, it's producing fruit again, kind of freely and it's, we can eat of it, and it's not as, much, it's not as much hard work anymore to produce it. When you see that, we should think back to the beginning when people's sins caused the earth to be cursed. And now, later in the story, the prophets are imaging a future where that's not true anymore. Where fruit will be bountiful, and we'll eat freely, and the land will become uncursed. And so it's an image of salvation for people because, again, it was our sin that cursed everything in the first place. Remember what God's saying here. I will save you, people. So we have to follow the river of the theme of cursed land back up to its source. What's feeding that river? The problem with this world is not ultimately that it's hard to grow plants sometimes. That's a problem. That's not an ultimate problem. The ultimate problem is having a diamond hard heart. Not just a few smudges on our cheeks. God, God was choosing his language carefully here. He doesn't say, and, and you had smudges on your cheeks to my law. He says, you have a diamond hard heart towards the things that I desire and just towards me. So that's an incurable thing, incurable. So if the problem's that drastic, the solution must be as well. And I, I can't say that enough. I know a lot of you have heard this from me before. I'm going to say it again. How you define the problem necessarily defines what you see the solution of the Bible as. They're inextricable. What the problem is necessarily defines the solution. Always. It's impossible for that not to affect each other. So if the problem is this drastic, the solution has to be as well. And here's what the gospel says to this. This is the solution. This is God's heart. God does end the curse by becoming a curse for us, that we might become a blessing. When he talks about jealous love, that might be abstract, and it is kind of abstract. You might think, what does that look like? He says, here's what it looks like. It looks like me sending my son to die on a cross among criminals in the most unjust, unfair, torturous way possible. Because it's there that I win you back. It's there that I soften your heart with my love. It's there I atone for your sins. Again, like that last song was getting at. It's there I give you my spirit. It's there I recreate you. Galatians 3.13 gets at this. It says, Christ redeemed us by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, which is what the cross was. If you hang there, this is what the Old Testament in Deuteronomy says. This is a, something God gave knowing the cross was coming. To be clear, Jesus isn't just going through that. He's becoming a curse before God, before his Father, for us, so that we wouldn't have to be. Fasted so we wouldn't have to. Harmed so we wouldn't be harmed. Went to hell so we wouldn't have to go. Separated from God on that cross so that we wouldn't have to be separated. Classic substitution. And in all of that, He's saying, I love you that much. I have a jealous love. I'm going to fight the devil, fight sin, fight your hard hearts. 
I'm going to fight your, your worst nightmares so that you might get back to me. Aletha and I went to um, the Guillermo del Toro exhibit, the MIA, uh, a couple weeks ago. You guys know that even existed? Uh, or a couple people? Did you see it? Yeah, you, sh you should maybe think about going. Um, did anybody see it? Come on, no one saw it. Aletha saw it. No one saw it? Do you guys even know it was there? Anyway, uh, I'll have to explain this then. Uh, the, the Guillermo del Toro exhibit, so he's a movie director, if you guys know that. Uh, he did movies like Hellboy 2 and Pan's Labyrinth and Pacific Rim, a bunch of other things. He's kind of a horror genre specialist, uh, you could say, uh, kind of, or I thought popular anyway, but then I didn't. Well, I mean, you guys know who he is, but anyway. Uh, doing Pacific Rim 2 coming out, if you guys like Pacific Rim, but anyway. I'm not, it was, uh, so we went with her mother-in-law. We actually went for the Arden Bloom. You guys know what that, that whole thing is. And then we got sidetracked with Guillermo del Toro. So it was basically Flowers and Monsters uh, was our day that Thursday. Great contrast. Uh, but we, there's no flowers in this one, but right outside, it was a really cool thing. Um, but we walked through, and, and Aletha actually saw this before I did. I, I appreciated her perspective on this, so I'll kind of share uh, some of her thoughts and some of mine. But um, if, as you walk in, so basically the exhibit is him bringing his living room, uh, his kind of like um, idea factory living room, some of his collections of things into, this, into the MIA in Minneapolis, and you can just kind of walk through it. And they say outside, PG-13 to rated R, and it's definitely R, so uh, I'm not recommending it, but I loved it. So you can, you can sort through that yourself if you want. Um, you should see it, uh, Tasha, but anyway. The, so the thing is, so, so we walked through, and it's kind of like a, um, like a haunted house. I mean, I, the phrase that came to mind for me was descent into hell. Uh, I didn't expect it. Uh, that it's it's uh, collections of paraphernalia and works of art and movie clips, sculptures, um, some of his testimony, which is kind of dark in its own right, uh, just kind of all splattered around. It gets worse as you go, more hopeless. Um, but as you go through, you actually see pictures of Jesus on the cross. You see crucifixes hanging up all around this stuff. Um, and he has a very kind of storied past with the Catholic Church. He's actually very anti-Christian. But it's interesting, he hung Christ up along, or kind of amidst all of this stuff. And Aletha's words to me were, it's, it's interesting because it seems like he sees horror in the cross. It's a horrific, nightmarish thing that God would go through that. And what we, uh, we kind of came out on the other side of saying to each other is we really appreciated, though, that he was in there. It brought us hope. Uh, so Jesus, not just Jesus, Jesus among the ghouls, among the monsters, among the nightmares, among the blood, the curses, the kids not being spared, the darkness, Jesus in all of that, Jesus absorbing all of that. Jesus hanging amongst all of it. You know, and Jesus went to nothing short of hell. This is, what, this is why we say this. Nothing short of hell on that cross for us. And, and as, as we're going through this, we're thinking, we're so glad he was there. A lot of hope. If he wasn't there, not a lot of hope. It'd be a lot darker. But this is the kind of thing he went through for you guys and for me. He did descend into hell in a sense on that cross. He suffered hell. And, and our sin drove him there, and his love drove him there together. And there's a lot of hope in that. And then we, this is why we have to have these images. Christ didn't, it's nothing sanitary about the cross. It's scandalous. It's dark. It was the hour of darkness. The sun went out 
when he hung on the cross around noon for a reason. The light of the world was extinguished. The devil had his hour. And it's the worst of times. And yet God used that to bring his son through. So he uses us. He comes into our suffering. He comes into our sin. He walks into that nightmarish cavity in our heart. And he comes back out, you know, with hope of a resurrection, hope of new life. There's just so much hope there. It's, if he wasn't there, I mean, what would that say about our worst fears and nightmares? If he didn't go through that, if he didn't go through that hellish kind of experience, then there'd be something that you could experience that he can't save you from. You know, it had to be the worst of things. It had to be an abomination. It had to be a curse. So Jesus then takes on the curses of Zechariah 7 so that Zechariah 8 might be possible. That's the point. Jesus takes on all the curses, judgments, hopeless statements, distances from God, the hells of Zechariah 7, so that Zechariah 8 is not just a hope, it's a reality for those who believe. And whereas the whole thing in Zechariah is foggy, the gospel makes it quite clear. Jesus became a byword of cursing for us and experienced exile from his father so that we might become a blessing. So two things then uh, to, uh, to close here. First is, uh, in terms of what we do with this, the first is, as it always is, always, not just should be, has to be, everything's about the gospel in the Bible, everything. The ultimate takeaway is to believe, Christian and non-Christian, trust in the gospel, trust in Jesus' blood. Take hold of his robe. That last statement about internationals, non-Jews, grabbing a Jew's robe and saying, we've heard about this God, reminded me a lot of Jesus some of you guys know the story, but when people would just grab his cloak and reach out and be healed of their diseases just by touching him, he's the ultimate Jew. And, and that's wonderfully emblematic of what salvation really is, just reaching out and grabbing Jesus' cloak. And one thing you notice in the movement between 7 and 8 is that Israel's failure to keep the law and to do good is not followed up in chapter 8 by a louder shout to do it but rather the shout of God's jealous love for his people. This didn't work, so I'll just get louder. This didn't work, so I'll replace it with my jealous love, with me becoming a curse and making a blessing out of it for my people. You know, in, in the Gospels, those sinners who grab Jesus' robe are healed, and those good people who don't aren't. Because Jesus is the answer, not morality. It's the only way to make sense of it. Really good people are kept away in the Gospels. Really bad people are saved because they trust in Jesus. That's the upside-down nature of the kingdom. That's, that's what, as prideful people, again, it, it, it trips us up. That's why Jesus says the last will be first, and the first will be last. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the only way to be saved, and he loves us. And so believe that gospel, and then secondly, let the gospel compel you to speak the truth to one another. I'll just read this here to, to wrap up. Um, let the gospel compel you to speak truth, to not lie, to eat together, to make peace with one another. This is especially Christian to Christian, but it could be applied to anybody. Let the gospel compel you to all of this. Uh, you know, in the gospel, there's no need to lie anymore. 
Because in Christ, there's nothing to fear, nothing to prove, and nothing to hide, which is where lying comes from. We lie because we're afraid. We want to hide things. We're afraid of confessing sin, and we're just afraid. But in Christ, saved by grace, accepted based on nothing we've ever done or will ever do, valued by God, counted as his child. No more fear, no more hiding, openness, and then so no more lying. There's also no need to center our lives around fasting, even though at times some of us may fast, but no need to center our lives around it because we're at the wedding of all weddings. And Christ fasted for us that we might feast on his grace. And no need to quarrel anymore because our quarrel with God has ceased. And again, we have no debates to win, no arguments to win because Christ, God's argument for grace, has found us. And that is literally all that we need. Let's pray. God, thank you for this uh, gospel truth, this story arc of Zechariah 7 and 8, which is the whole Bible in a nutshell. Sin and redemption. Rebellion and yet your relentless love that didn't leave us to our own devices, that didn't leave us hellbound, but interrupted our race with grace and gave us a new life. Uh, Father, so we thank you for just the projection, the trajectories we see right embedded back in Zechariah from fasting to feasting, from self-harm uh, to God harming himself, from curse uh, for us, from curse to blessing. Um, God, it, it is that, that's who we are. We are the fought-for ones. We are that loved. And that gospel can never be earned. Uh, so forgive us for, for trying to earn it. Forgive us for trying to do everything and be everywhere and do all good. Um, God, help, help good to flow from your grace uh, and not apart from it. But thanks again, God, for this demonstration of your great and incredible love for us that went to hell and back to save a people for himself. In Jesus' name, amen.